Arts, Lifestyle, SNS Online. Mike Wallace, SIS Special Operations. Now then, we don't want to start Christmas like this, do we? Eddie, are you coming up or aren't you? In a minute. The TARDIS key, Doctor. Please, Doctor, do you really want to see your friend die? Have you seen many properties? A few, but uh, nothing I've liked as much. Are you trying to tell me that you and Colin sleep in the same sheet, at the same time, in the same bed, the government is to ban the promotion of homosexuality in schools. Children who need to be taught to respect traditional moral values are being taught that they have an inalienable right to be gay. Good evening, the headlines at six o'clock. In the House of Lords, a vote is taking place now on a challenge to the poll tax. Tory rebels have... So long as a man and a woman procreate, so homosexuality will exist, and we will never surrender! Now, to discuss this further, we're joined by Lord Cashman, the peer and equality campaigner who, as an EastEnders actor, was one half of British television's I have probably my entire adult life fought with those who have purported to represent the majority and with political parties who have argued against equality and voted against equality. And every step of the way, especially when I lost, I redoubled my efforts in that fight for the right to be heard and the right to equality. I didn't give up then despite the defeats and I am not going to give up now. Hello and welcome to SNS Online and indeed our very first show of Series 7. Today's special guest had already proved himself as a successful stage and screen performer before his fictional life acted as a conduit, leading him to fight real-world issues in Westminster and beyond. He's a champion of social reform and currently resides at the House of Lords, where he works tirelessly on behalf of us all. And his new autobiography, one of them, from Albert Square to Parliament Square, charts an extraordinary love story that would rival the very best of them. Welcome, one and all, to the loveliest of people, and a bit of a legend to boot, Lord Michael Cashman, CBE. So Michael, welcome to the programme. It is such an honour to properly meet you and to talk about your life and work beautifully documented by your autobiography, one of them, from Albert Square to Parliament Square, which has just been released by uh, Bloomsbury in hardback. Um, I've been an admirer of your work for years, obviously the political side, because... You don't look old enough. Oh, no, trust me, I am. My father was born, I think, the same year your father was, so there you go. I know, I know. But also your acting work. I mean, I'm a big Eightbourne fan, so I, I love Seasons Greetings and I've got that on my Sky Planner so I actually watch it every Christmas it's a real special treat for me just so wonderful what an amazing cast I was going to say just a, a, a sublime cast and, uh, and interestingly enough that was about six months before I went into EastEnders and when I was on that show I had an offer to go on to uh, an ITV soap, and I, and I said to um, to Jeffrey Jeffrey Palmer, who was in it, I said, "What should I do?" And he, "No, no, 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 no. You're you're far far too good for for that." Um, <laughs> and if I'd gone into it, of course, I wouldn't have gone into 
EastEnders. So yeah. thank you, Jeffrey Palmer. Was that Albion Square or... Mar- uh, uh, no, those... it was Market in uh, Albion Lane. Or... Yeah, that's yeah, the yeah, one yeah, we're yeah. talking about. Yes. And it didn't last, did it? So, no, and, oh. and my dear friend Ray Lonnan was in it. And I'd been with Ray in uh, The Sandbaggers mm-hmm. you know, yes. years before. So, um, so there was Ray. I think he put in a good word to get me in. So... It was interesting, that brilliant production for BBC Two of uh, Season's Greetings is still referred to as a wonderful example of taking a stage play and brilliantly transferring it to screen. Before we sort of go back in time to your early days onwards, I just I wanted to ask you, how difficult was it to collate all these dazzling and, and disparate memories into a structured piece of work? It was very difficult initially um, because I'm trying to put in when I've finished it 67 years of of life and and, and the secret is knowing what to leave out but but when Bloomsbury um, my publishers became involved I was uh, the gift of working with a brilliant young editor Callum Kenny Um, but the the editor-in-chief, uh, Alexandra Pringle, who is the doyen of publishing, she knew exactly how to steer me. Um, she used a lot of my acting experience uh, to, to get me to tell the story in a way where you don't do the work for the reader. You allow the reader to feel what they think you're feeling. You allow the reader to emote. Um, and that, I think, is the best acting. Aikborn once said to me, he said, he said, he said what's, what's funnier, someone laughing or someone trying not to laugh? What's more moving, someone crying or someone trying not to cry? And once you get the essence of that, that you, you strip it away. Um, and after a second draft and then a third draft, um, you get to know that the, that the reader um, – wants to you've started them on a journey and they want that narrative to develop uh, and nick what i found fascinating was having the courage to let the narrative take you along and there are bits that i read and i'm shocked i think my god how did i how did i step back and observe that and other bits where um there's one bit in particular just after my dad dies and i refer to something that ha- that's that that happens and I just say an ending had begun. And it's a very important ending within our family. Um, so that that is the lovely thing about working with such experienced and caring publishers that they want you to succeed. And as an actor, of course, my old profession, you get used to taking notes, you get used to taking direction, aware of the fact that people want to help you, that criticism is not a negative the Isle of Dogs, typical part of London's Dockland, a few miles downriver from the capital. The origin of the name is very obscure, but it's known throughout the seafaring world. It is in such surroundings as these that a chain of Dockland settlements have been formed. In this settlement, the youth of the Isle of Dogs finds healthy pleasure. Girls and boys find it a haven of recreation in the midst of London's great docks. Dancing, dramatics, physical training, games, Everything possible is available for Docklands youth. The post-war East End was both mesmerising and bloody awful. But there wasn't a better place to be alive and poor. The docks were thriving, 
Ships and boats were double-berthed along the Thames, and cargo arrived from across the world to be bundled into lorries and carts or on the backs of strong men. For us kids, the war was far enough behind that it felt like a fascinating game. As we rushed between bomb sites playing Germans and English, cowboys and Indians, and sex versions of doctors and nurses. And we, the Cashmans, live right in the middle of it all, on a council estate on the edge of the River Thames. A working class lad born in the East End five years after the Second World War. The way you describe it in your book, there's almost like a timeless quality about the struggles and joys of working class life seems to be it could be almost any era. It could be almost in the 30s or even mm. Dickensian, really. There were no uh, you know, smartphones or anything like that. No. So it's a very basic level of living. And you, your family struggled. They did struggle. Uh, we knew poverty, but we never knew hunger um, because that was something my mum and my dad always did. Whether he had to steal when he was in the docks um, or whether she, borrowed, she begged, borrow, borrowed or stole, she made sure we had... Uh, Food, but it was a, it it was a different era. Interestingly, you say about Dickensian because Armistead did mop him when he read it. He re, he said uh, almost a, Dick, a Dickens childhood. And Sheila Hancock, Sheila said uh, a Dickensian. Um, I think she said something like a brutal Dickensian upbringing. Yeah. But but it wasn't brutal when you were there because you had there was an amazing community that people who helped one another. Doors were left open. Um, if if you didn't have money for the gas meter or the electric meter, Betty Wood next door did, or or Daisy Pitaway on the third floor, or, or you you went off with your mum to the pawnbrokers and and she pawned her wedding ring. Mm. You know, men didn't have wedding rings, no. um, uh, and and so you knew you knew the price of the value, not the price. And, and on those th- those wonderful days when we were kicked out during the school holidays and, and the instruction was out and you don't come home till you know when. And, and if you didn't move fast enough, there was a boot on your backside. From, and it, that was from our mum. And, um, <laughs> and off you go. And, and because you had no money, you had your imagination and the bomb sites of the yes. East End, the, the going through the foot tunnel under the Thames and coming up in Greenwich Park. It was a stunning world with the docks alive and threatening and challenging and, and lorries and, and horse-drawn carts everywhere and men with huge bales on their backs. It was like being in the middle of a film. It was incredible. Everywhere... There was noise. The sounds pulled and pushed at you. Men shouting. Lorries revving up and snarling through the streets. Cranes and chains descending. Ropes and barges pulling against the Thames tides. Then the ships and tugs blasting one another in the queue to be unloaded or passed down river. Us crying for mums and dads and ice cream from the wall's ice cream man. Knife grinders on their bikes. Wheels forever spinning. The baker's van, the coal lorry, the money lender hammering at a door and always some poor woman inside screaming that nobody's in. Um, unless you know where you've come from, you've got nowhere to travel. Absolutely, and, absolutely. And when we were cold in, in the winter, there were no more blankets. You had overcoats on your bed. Um, and if you were lucky, the dog could sustain being in the bedclothes with three young boys sharing a bed. Um, it was tough, but as I said, we, we, we never went hungry.
When it came to performing in front of the school and the parents, I didn't flinch. I'd done it for Betty Wood and the other mums at Garford House, so I could do it again. The Christmas show approached and Mr Everett got me time off from the other classes to practice. Mr Carrigan, the headmaster, popped in to see that everything was above board and the chaos reassured him. Not much from that Christmas show sticks in my memory, except that I sang two songs, Bud Flanagan Strolling and then I did Eartha Kitt. When Mr Everett announced that they had a star all the way from America, a silence descended. He continued, Here she is, the fabulous, the wonderful Miss Eartha Kitt. And two boys brought me in reclining on the back of a chair, wearing one of my mum's best dresses. There was a commotion as she stood up and shouted, Here, here, he's got my bleeding cocktail dress on. I'm just an old-fashioned girl. And they all started laughing, but I ignored them singing and acting away like Eartha through Old Fashioned Millionaire. The audience clapped and cheered as I complained that the boys had carried me off too soon. And an old millionaire. How did the acting bug start for you? I think it was my way of escaping. Um, I think second children often have to use their elbows to get noticed. I was the second. My, uh, as I say in the book, my dad turned up the, the, the day after I was born to look at his son. He wasn't around for the first. Um, and, and as a second child, you push to be noticed. But, but I knew I was different. I knew when I, I probably knew at the age of seven that I was attracted to boys. Um, and, and so the way of getting the attention... Uh, was to perform, was to sing, was to dance, to say, I'm putting on a show. And the mothers used to go, oh, lovely. And after about the third of, in one day, they go, oh, not again, Michael. Um, <laughs> and and so I got the bug because I wanted, I think like a lot of young gay people, I wanted to escape who I was. I wanted to to be that person on the screen and, and because I, I couldn't kick a ball, let alone play football. Uh, in the East End, like a lot of working class um cultures your escape was football um you went into show business to people like people like alma cogan um tommy Steele. now or you went into crime Mm -hmm. that was they were the three ways of 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 escaping um the the position into which you were born My, my dad when we were born with all of his sons, went down the the port labour board and put our names down so that when we left school, we would go into the docks like him. And if the docks hadn't gone into decline, um, and I hadn't impersonated Eartha Kitt when I did <laughs> at school, um, I probably would have gone into the docks and been, been one of those rebels in mm. the docks. That's amazing. I mean, there are so many sort of turn left sliding door moments <laughs> with, with you uh, almost becoming a doctor, which we'll get to uh, later. Um, but... At this early time, again referring to the book, searing honesty when it came to abuse that you suffered, once by a complete stranger and then by someone who became a sort of Arthur Daly agent, uh, Woody. Mm, yes. Yeah, I yeah. mean, sort of terrifying but, but fascinating because it, it was a sort of a coming... In some ways, it was a sort of coming of age for you, but it was very brutal. It was brutal. The, um, the first one that happened, that complete stranger... Um, uh, when it happened, I just thought, why are you doing this to me? You were so nice. Why, I haven't done anything to you. Why, why are you hurting me? And, and then afterwards, when I, I, got, I went home uh, and I went in and, and I was told off for being late 
And, I was, and just just to say, this was just somebody you you were walking home, and somebody asked you if you could earn a shilling. Yeah, for he said, something. "Do you want to earn a shilling?" Mm. And a shilling in those days, my God, you you could drown yourself in ice ice cream and and, and cream soda. It was uh, it was wonderful. And I suggest, and he took me down this alleyway to the Thames and got me over the wall. Um, and that's in a trailer, a backed-up trailer. That's where the abuse happened. But afterwards, I knew I couldn't tell anyone because I thought I'm going to cause trouble and I'll be the one to blame. And the other thing that I think goes through your mind at the time is you can't believe what's happened to you. So how can you make anybody else believe, even if you could find the words to describe it? Um and so I did the easiest thing, which was to bury it. Bury it. Mm. And I was so pleased when I went in down the little long hallway of our council flat and it was all darkness and I thought, good, they can't see that I've been crying. They can't see that my, my belt buckle's broken. Mm. Um, and, and then when it happened again, when I was in Oliver in the West End, and, and that grooming was pretty shocking because he convinced my parents that I should go with him and stay with his wife and kids and the day that I went and the night that we went to his house it was a boarding house and there was no wife and there were no kids and he passed me off as his son and suddenly you're a 12 year old child in an adult's world and you've been told all your all your childhood life children should be seen and not heard know your place um and that, that grooming and that abuse went on for years. And, and I just found a way of, I described in the book, of finding a switch in my head. I mean, did those experiences initially hinder you from enjoying, if you like, relations when you were older? Because the impression I got that was you managed to keep them reasonably separate in your mind when embracing your, yourself, your, your, your gay identity. What I did was uh, cleverly buried it. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I said, think a yeah. lot of... Victims do, and then when we, we, we resuscitate it, we resuscitate it in order not to just be survivors, important though that is, but to be victors. Mm. Um, and um, and f it didn't sabotage my relationships, except those times when I, might, when I got too much to drink, uh, because I think what it, what it, the toxic element was that if you loved me, you would have to hurt me. And if you didn't hurt me, then you couldn't love me. So when I was with Lee uh, in the swinging, wonderful 60s when I met him and I, uh, I tracked him down um, after our initial um, night out and, uh, and I thought, no, he's the one for me. And, um, and I used to provoke Lee into uh, trying to hurt me, to be bad towards me and, and perhaps leave me because then I could be reassured that he did love me. Um, and... And then subsequent relationship and Paul had to deal with that. And I think if it wasn't for Paul's persistence and patience and maturity beyond his years, um, we wouldn't have survived the 31 years and I wouldn't have learnt that I was worthy of being loved. Mm. And if you can say that uh, after a, a relationship, you've been given the most amazing gift. <laughs> As well as doing eight shows a week, I had learned the lines for the part of Oliver and all his songs and attended understudy rehearsals just in case Oliver was sick or got hit by a bus. But our Oliver was as fit as a fiddle and could dodge a bus at any speed. 
That was until his balls dropped and he couldn't hit the notes. I arrived at the theatre and the stage doorkeeper told me to go down to the orchestra pit where Jack, the Glaswegian pianist that nobody could understand, was waiting for me. Right, he said. And without any explanation, off we went through Oliver's songs, one after the other at breakneck speed. I wanted to ask him why we were doing all this now, just before a show, but I knew better than to ask. When we finished, he stood up, took the fag out of his mouth and said, Reet, now get yourself up to the dressing room and get changed. I looked at him blankly. You're on tonight, lad, as Oliver, and popped his fag back in his mouth. Backstage, I put my four pennies into the phone, dialed and pressed button A when it was answered. I told the neighbour and then my mum the news, but mum didn't understand. So I shouted down the phone, I'm bleeding Oliver tonight. Then she screamed and said they were all coming. Spotlighting some of your earlier roles uh, in the theatre and on screen. Obviously, Oliver was a huge one as a, a child actor, um, obviously documented very well in your book. But then segueing into adult roles, including working alongside Elizabeth Taylor, which must have been amazing yeah, yeah. Um, in the film. And uh, you've got, uh, are you allowed to tell this? I don't know how much you want to tell in terms of like revealing too much about the mm. book, but um, it's such a lovely story whether you when you met her. You mean the, the photograph? Yes. Well, there's a wonderful moment where she, um, I was rehearsed by the director because Elizabeth was a huge star. Um, and, um, and then when they thought I was ready to do my scene with Elizabeth, this, this call went up, Elizabeth is coming, Elizabeth is coming. And this coterie of people, like a cloud, came onto the, 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 the floor of the set and drifted away. And there she was, stood in front of me, this small, amazing woman with violet, beautiful, piercing violet eyes. And um, and I I wanted a photograph with her to prove that I'd acted with her. Totally. And everyone, everyone kept yeah. saying, no, not possible, not possible, not possible. So I did what Cashman's do on the last day. I said to her, I said, Elizabeth, would it be possible if we had a photograph? And she, Any way to do it. And she went, sure, why don't we do it on your last day? And I said, well, today's my last day. And they just closed down the set. People were going home, and she suddenly shouted, let's have some light on around here. The first assistant director said, what's going on? She said, I'm going to have a photograph done with Michael. It's his last day. Get the lights on. So this call went up. Get the lights on. Who wants the lights? Elizabeth wants to get the lights on. Get the... And then the lights were turned on. People went into overtime yeah. to get this photograph, and off she went, costing the studio thousands and thousands of dollars for my photograph and looking at the photograph um, I love for it. me it was worth it only Elizabeth Taylor uh, could do that, only she had the clout and the chutzpah and uh, I thanked her many years later this isn't in the book, when Paul and I met her at Elton John's and, and she went, oh did I really? Oh I used to be nice, I said no you were fabulous and I said and this is Paul who's kept me sane all these years and she went sane, honey Paul, you failed. <laughs> Knowing that I fancied other guys, he told me that he was going to open my eyes. On tour, he introduced me to pubs where they had separate rooms for queers and Nancys. It was totally illegal to be homosexual, and you could be arrested just for trying to chat someone up, so separate rooms were safer. When they closed at 10.30, there were all-night cafes where you stirred your tea, popped your pills and sat with over-made-up boys and drag queens, listening to the shocking stories of cocks and beatings, or both. 
The more naive you were, the more gruesome the details became, especially from the prostitutes, who competed with the queers for the most eye-popping tale. I loved it. I threw myself into this new frontier so readily that I was taken aside by one of the older queer actors and informed in no uncertain terms that we were criminals, that we could be arrested for trying to meet other men and that I was to desist. But Ian told me to ignore the old queens and to just keep my wits about me. Anyway, it made no sense. How could we be criminal when there were queers on the radio every weekend? And just after lunchtime too. Hello, anybody there? Oh, hello, I'm Julian, and this is my friend Sandy. Oh, hello, hello. You became close to Alan Aitbourne and his wife, uh, both acting in his theatre company in Scarborough uh, and also London, but also writing your own plays via Peggy Ramsey, the legendary agent. Oh, the amazing. All these names. Yeah, well, Peg, Peggy people will remember from the Joe Alton film, if Absolutely. they don't remember her. Vanessa Rigger, of course. Yeah, uh, and, and Peggy was, was a, a force to be reckoned with, and she never described herself as a literary agent. She used to say, I'm a play agent, dear. I represent plays. So she met me. I'd been in a, in a, a musical at the... Um, uh, the ICA in London, and she asked to meet me, and I, and I sat down, and and she said, "I I saw you in that musical, dear. You've clearly suffered in love, and it wasn't a question. Peggy knew I'd suffered in love, um, and she she asked me. She said, "I hear you write," and she asked me to give her a play, and it was on Peggy's insistence. She read my play, uh, told me what was wrong with it because she was brilliant like that. Um, and then said, you need to go and work with uh, Akebourne. And Alan said to me, Peggy tells me you can write. Would you write me a play? Give me the outline. And um, and he was brilliant. He guided me through, guided me through the, the rewrites, the redrafting, gave me some wonderful ideas. And we were so nervous, all of us, mm-hmm. Heather, uh, who became Alan's wife, Heather Stoney then, and Alan and I all in the bar waiting for Peggy to come out at the interval. She came out at the interval and she looked at me and she said, I'm saying nothing, I'm saying nothing. And she delivered <laughs> gossip about the latest disaster in the West End. And at the end of the show, the audience came out and there was no Peggy. And I thought, oh, my God, she's found the ex- exit and she's scarpered. She hates it. And I went in search of her and she just came into the corridor from the auditorium and she just looked at me and she went, coup de théâtre, dear, coup de théâtre. Fabulous. Took me out for dinner. Oh, and, yes, yes, yes. Uh, oh, wonderful, wonderful. Because she was someone who, she didn't, if you didn't like her opinion, she would say, then I suggest you find yourself another agent. Because yeah. she was interested yeah. in getting you to your pinnacle. Um, I said at one point, I want to write for television. She went, no, dear, factories destroy writers, swallow mm. them up. Theatre, theatre. <laughs> I want to talk about Royal Shakespeare Company. Let's talk about your audition <laughs> for that. <laughs> well, you had to do a piece of Shakespeare, a verse, uh, and a piece of modern verse. So my modern verse was J.B. Priestley. And then I thought... Of course, you were in with him. Yeah, yeah. I worked with wonderful mm. Priestley, uh, celebrating his 80th birthday on television. And they said, well, what will be your, 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 your verse piece? I said, I'd rather not announce it. So I finished my bit of the Priestly, which ends, uh, I did not discover any deeper reality in war. 
and then left this long pause and then went, "'There's a famous seaside place called Blackpool "'that's noted for fresh air and fun, "'and Mr and Mrs Ramsbottom went there with young Albert, their son. "'He, <laughs> a grand little lad, was young Albert, "'all dressed in his best, quite a swell. "'And I saw <laughs> the directors and the casting directors of the RSC. Oh, "'They couldn't believe what I was doing. "'And I just, they didn't interrupt me. "'I did all the different voices of, of Mrs Ramsbottom and, and, and Mr Ramsbottom.' And, and got through it all and they went, well, we've never had that before. <laughs> and the intimation was, and we never want it again. Yes. And I think it was the sheer cheek uh, that got me into the Royal Shakespeare Company and into King Lear with Michael Williams and Donald Sindon. But I would say just as valid, you're doing voices and you're, you're emoting and all the rest of it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think it was talked about for uh, uh, quite a few days afterwards. But, uh, yeah, it, it worked. And sometimes the, uh, the shock element in, uh, in acting and performing uh, can have its benefits. Back in the changing room, he slipped the holy oils into a velvet pouch and came straight to the point. Would you be free for a spot of dinner and a few drinks later? Oh, well, I agreed to meet him for drinks. It seemed like a safe bet, given his position. In fact, the evening finished at Church House, Westminster Cathedral, with me being chased around the vast circular table, having rebuffed the holy man's advances the entire night. No, Father, I pleaded. No. Deeply out of breath, he suddenly stopped placed two hands on the table to support himself and said, For God's sake, will you give up and let me at you? The sky's the limit. Amused, I asked, Don't you mean heaven? Don't play semantics with me, he said, and lunged at me. I rushed for the door, fled down the steep flight of stairs and into the street. I'd come within inches of seeing not only the colour of his vestments, but the size of his communion wafer too. And for more stories like that and so much more, please do get yourself down to the nearest bookshop or order online Michael Cashman's wonderful autobiography, one of them from Albert Square to Parliament Square. So you met your lifetime partner, Paul, in Scarborough, I believe, and it was via Barbara Windsor. Yes, um, I I was working up there with Alan Akebourne. My first play was... Uh, performing, and I was performing in uh, in the company. Um, and uh, Barbara, it was the end of the season, and Barbara decided to throw an end of season party. Uh, so around these uh, uh, Butlins redcoats came from the Butlins Grand Hotel with invitations, uh, and this stunning young man appeared in front of me. Didn't even give me so much as a second look, um, and so off I went to the uh, uh, the event. Barbara was there, true pro, welcoming everyone. And um, and then suddenly beside me was this young redcoat, Paul Cottingham. And he said, oh, you're that actor from the theatre, aren't you? And there was something incredible about him. He, I mean, not only really stunningly good looking, which you see from the photographs in the book, but he had a, mm. a cheekiness that you, you, if you bottled it, you would make a fortune from it. Um, <laughs> and that lovely confidence that young people have about occupy, occupying the space that they're in. Yeah. And while we he was clearly in demand because while we were chatting, suddenly this woman appeared out of nowhere, grabbed hold of him and looked at me and she went, this is my red coat. And disappeared off with him and he came back and I said, I'm sorry, I didn't realise you belonged to anyone. <laughs> and that night, um, 
he he came back to the flat. Um, he was thirteen years younger than me, um, and it was incredible. Mm. It, it it was the start of a journey that I tried to sabotage mm. so many times. Mm. I couldn't believe that someone that stunning um, could love me. I didn't believe uh, that it would last because of the age difference. Um, He'd been brought up in a heterosexual environment, had mainly heterosexual relationships, um, but showed a maturity and a, beyond his years. The response to our open relationship was not always positive. Our commitment to each other was constantly questioned by others, but Paul taught me the difference between love and sex, and I now unquestionably knew that you could not own another human being. And you certainly cannot own love. It can only be given. If the gay scene was sniffy about open relationships, the straight world was deeply perplexed. It reassured some of them of our moral depravity, while others secretly admired and desired it. Uh, and, and, of course, being in EastEnders, he, moved, he had the courage, enormous courage, to move down to London, where I didn't change much of my life, and he completely changed his um, and it was only in the early years when we were about to split up that I absolutely recognised the sacrifices that he'd made and the selfishness that I'd displayed, which I hadn't realised I'd been, I'd been doing. Um, and, and we began a relationship that we had to work out every single day. Uh, my passion for um, EastEnders, he was outed. To the press and to his by the press to his family and his friends, and 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 then after that the press weren't interested in representing us as a couple. He was told to get out of the way of photographs. He was told that he shouldn't be in the shot of the photograph, and that affected our relationship. Um, and then subsequently, when I went on to do Stonewall and politics, um, again I, I was pursuing my passion and not putting enough work into the relationship. So the fact that we had 31 amazing years mm. uh, is, uh, is incredible. But it took work. Uh, mm. Again, Aikborn said all marriages uh, become great working relationships. You have mm. to work at it. And if something's worth it, it's worth working at. Nothing remains the same. The mirror tells me that every morning when I look <laughs> in it. Um, and... Uh, and, and to end up knowing that you've been loved is to know that you've been changed. We are getting married. Even though they call it a civil partnership, we'll have the same rights, the same responsibilities, and I never thought it would happen in my lifetime. Three months after the civil partnership legislation came into effect, which we had helped to come a reality, Paul and I arrived at our venue on the 11th of March 2006, nervous, awkward and excited. Paul had found a brilliant location, Vanopolis, a huge Victorian wine warehouse nestled beside the infamous Clink Prison at London Bridge. Paul quietened my nerves, thrust a cup of coffee at me and then ran through the programme with the staff. After the ceremony, everyone would go upstairs for the drinks reception or the room was rearranged for the buffet dinner for the 300 guests. 
When that was over, the three bar would continue and we would dance away to an ABBA tribute band until midnight and beyond. Ever the organiser, Paul wanted to be there from the beginning to make certain it went okay. Hidden away from our guests, we perched upstairs and waited as the staff gave us a running commentary. Outside, the media spilled over into the street, and so did the security, as half the cabinet was in attendance. Gordon and Sarah Brown, the first female foreign secretary, Margaret Beckett, her husband Leo, Cherie Blair, as well as casts of soaps, dramas and the creme de la creme of British theatre. Oh, and Lily Savage, a.k.a. Paul O'Grady. You're listening to SNS Online with today's special guest, Michael Cashman. And if you want to comment on this show, or indeed any other, then please contact us via our website, snsonlineshow.com. SNS Online presents the soundtrack of your life. It's um, Fields of Gold by Sting, because when we had our marriage. It was a civil partnership, but I call it marriage. Paul was an organiser and I left him to organise everything and all of the music, everything. And um, and now when I hear Fields of Gold, it brings back for me that I stood there with him, being able to publicly declare my love and him, his love for me. And, and I never believed that it would happen in my lifetime. Even though I campaigned for it, worked for it, I never believed it would happen. And it reminds me of him. It reminds me of that amazing day. Um, and it's such a beautiful song. The lyrics aren't always apt about she and her, but love crosses boundaries and love is universal. That, that, that would be my song. They can, they can roll me down the uh, crematorium aisle to that. You remember me when the west wind moves upon the fields of Bali. Forget the sun in his jealous sky as we walk in fields of gold. So she took her love for to gaze a while upon the fields of Bali. In his arms she fell as a hair came
On the night of the dinner, Paul went to Mayfair to collect Ian from a party. He rang the intercom, entered the building, and was let into the flat by none other than Joan Collins. Joan was elegantly attired and coiffured, purred a welcome, and told him that he must stay and enjoy the party, darling. Never a man to refuse a bit of glamour and celebrity flirting, he stayed for about half an hour before he and Ian set off to the dinner. Elton was waiting outside to greet them and told Paul it was going to be a fun night. You'll know everyone, they're all soap stars, he said, and swept them in. Sat on the floor in full flow was Princess Diana, Sylvester Stallone, Richard Gere, George Michael, a couple of other Hollywood celebs and Dawn French. As the evening progressed, something in the air changed. Testosterone and tension filled the room. Suddenly, Stallone and Gear squared up to one another, leading to Stallone storming out. Apparently, there had been competition between them for Diana's attention. Dawn plopped herself on the floor and told Paul to sit beside her. It's my turn to hold court now, she shouted. After dinner, most people slipped away. In a corner, a Hollywood star quietly pleaded with Paul to stay the night with him. When he told me who he had refused, I was gobsmacked. Are you mad? Why? Well, I told him it wasn't my house, and I had to take Ian back to London. Besides, I didn't know what Elton would say. I couldn't believe he had turned down this gorgeous hunk and told him he should have stayed. Ever the honest one, he confessed. It was because I was driving, and I hadn't had a drink. Otherwise, I would have shoved Ian in a taxi. The next day, I read about the night, the party and the bust-up in the papers, but not the covert invitation. Tiptoeing through your acting career before EastEnders, there was the Sandbaggers, which was a big series at the time. Gideon's, I think, was your first uh, TV, ITC uh, series. Doctor Who, of course, I'm a massive Doctor Who fan. I think you should have been Doctor Who. <laughs> I think you would have made a mesmerising young Doctor Who a la Peter Davison. But, of course, Peter Davison did it and probably would have been considered similar. Probably very similar. Uh, but you look great in uniform in that story. <laughs> I know. And that, that wonderful story of, of Concord going missing. Bonkers. Bonkers. Yeah. Um, and uh, and I remember we were filming on the top of the car park at um, uh, at the old uh, Heathrow Airport. So this was nineteen seventy. No, a bit later. But perhaps eighty-one, eighty-two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and and there were all these planes taken off, and um, and we had the TARDIS there on the roof of a car park with all the snow around us that we had to pretend wasn't there because yeah, it wasn't we in the script. Yeah, we, and we weren't <laughs> sure it was going to be there later. Um, but going on Concord and and and, and the, the 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 instructor from from BA said he said you can touch that touch that touch that but don't touch that uh, and I said why he said if you touch that he said sadly the wheel at the front gets tucked under and you'll break the nose of Concord. Oh my god! Um, so it was all fired up. Mm-hmm. Um, but the but working with the the the, the tech. The technical aspects mm. um, was challenging and funny. I've never laughed so much. You probably had to stand around for an awful lot while they're doing CSO and things. Uh, yeah, exactly. And holding the same position. Yeah. <laughs> and then they go, right, now, on. And then pretending that you just suddenly landed in this strange landscape <laughs> surrounded by um, strange shapes. It's like gr- some drama school uh, you know, training, isn't yeah, it? Really? But, uh, but I have to say, it was so happy. We had... 
so much fun. I think it was Anthony Ainley. Yeah, Anthony Ainley is the master. master yeah. And he used to say, um, yeah, he used to go, the room, the room, nira, nira. And he said to the director, Ron, he said, he said, Ron, could you help me with this? Could you give me some motivation? And Ron said, the fee? <laughs> Would that be a motivation? I love it. But really happy time. <laughs> But the irony is, um, he said doing a contrived one-show link, uh, that you almost decided to leave what was already a very successful career in order to be a, a, an actual doctor, which is extraordinary. Yeah. I mean, to have one passion in life is 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 wonderful enough, but to, to discover another one, and we haven't even got to the third one yet. <laughs> no, uh, but the for me, it, it was uh, uh, as a shock, uh, as it will be for, for the reader, something happened which I won't reveal. Okay. Um, which is in the book, where I witnessed two doctors bringing a woman back to life. And the way they did it uh, just etched itself onto my brain. And that, that, that sense of being, able, uh, of, of being able to matter, of, of, of doing something that, that really affected change, um, struck me. Because often as an actor... You you don't you're you're dealing in a production that then gets lost and goes off into the the ether and then you're on to something else and and what what you're building on is a career that if other people don't recognise has has no value and that really struck me and it kept coming back to me and so um, I knew with all the success that I was having that it felt like it belonged to somebody else it didn't belong to me so. One Friday afternoon, I sat down, Ken Parry, a wonderful character actor, um, who I was staying with at the time, and I said, Ken, uh, I want to become a doctor. And he was a clairvoyant, and he, he's very funny, called everyone Alice. And had this <laughs> lovely voice, he used to talk like that. And he said, well, he said, um, spirit, because he was a great spiritualist, he said, spirit obviously sent you here for that reason, dear. So that's what you must do. And um, and I phoned up and I found a way of cramming four and a half years of education uh, into eleven months. And uh, uh, and sadly, I I didn't get into medical school. You almost did. I almost did. Um, and it, I, you know, I think a lot of being a doctor, as well as making people better, is is having empathy with yeah. with, with people. And I, you clearly have that in spades. Well, a sub dean of a, a medical school, she said to me. What's your ambition as a doctor? And completely threw me. She said, what is your ambition? And I said, um, my ambition is to be woken up in the middle of the night and told I've got to go down to uh, A&E to sew somebody up uh, and to curse about it. And she went, brilliant, you know, you know what it's like. Yeah. Um, and, uh, uh, but even on that journey, Nick, I had amazing uh, experiences and opportunities when I failed the first time round physics failed in that I didn't get a high enough grade um, I went and got a job as a hospital porter at the old Westminster Hospital um, and luck was have it I was thrown into being the sole porter theatre porter in the gynaecological and, and car cardio unit I met the, the heart pioneer uh, Charles, Charles Drew, Drew yeah. who took me under his wing and introduced me to his anaesthetist, who was the dean of the medical school. Um, <laughs> but it didn't work out. I was offered dentistry, but I uh, decided that I'd given up a wonderful career in show business to do medicine. And if I couldn't do that, then I'd have to have the courage to go back and start again. 
The green room, which is never green, was empty. Rosters and schedules were pinned on the notice board with the famous EastEnders logo emblazoned on them. There were two phones, in trays with actors' names on and rows of armless comfy chairs around the three sides of the room. I checked the time, opened my script again, which I had marked up, and silently ran through my lines. A voice pierced the silence. Are you new? She didn't wait for a response, but walked over to one of the phones. It was Gretchen Franklin, who played the pub's ancient cockney cleaning lady, Ethel, famous for her on-screen pug, Willie. Gretchen had been in the business for years and had started out as a variety artist with her parents. I stood up and extended my hand, which she ignored. Yes, I'm new, I replied. She spoke into the phone. It's me, Gretchen. Could you order my car, dear? And she put the phone down and headed for the door, saying over her shoulder, You'll enjoy this job. It's like being shot out of a cannon backwards. You never know where you're going to end up. And she was gone. talk about the origins of EastEnders and how perhaps it, it took a while to, to dawn on you what an incredible opportunity this was, but also potentially quite frightening. Yes. When, when I was asked to go in and see Julia Smith, the original producer and co-creator along with Tony Holland, um, the show had been on about seven months and Paul and I were great fans of it. Uh, but I thought I'd never be in it because we'd actually fallen out monumentally 10 years before. Uh, Julia and I had a big row and I was virtually sacked from a show about nursing called Angels. Oh, I uh, remember the Angels. Yeah, yeah, yeah you I played it. the first male nurse on oh, Angels. Wow. I'll have to go look back on that. <laughs> yeah, I can't remember his name. but um, uh, And so when we sat down in their office uh, in Shepherd's Bush and they outlined the character and the two years of, of um, uh, storylines. And they said, but we've been trying to cast a straight actor. Um, but we want you. We keep thinking of you. And, uh, and I said, why a straight actor? And she said, the character's gay. And then I understood why. Because at that time, the, the attitude of the tabloids and right-wing politicians, and not only right-wing, some on the left, um, was an intolerance of difference. And it's certainly an intolerance of uh, lesbians and gay men. Uh, AIDS was being depicted as the gay plague. It was in the newspapers that you could pick it up by sitting next to a gay man. And so the stereotyping and the, 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 the negative stigmatization uh, was awful. And, and so I knew what they meant, that the, the press would go for whoever took on this role. So I immediately said I couldn't say yes. I had to talk to Paul and talk to my mum and dad. And um, and and then I I started this amazing journey, which I can honestly say, if I hadn't taken that part, and and accepted the challenge that came up during it of the anti-gay law that yeah. the government brought forward, I I wouldn't have had the career that followed. No, I wouldn't have ended not. up in founding Stonewall. I wouldn't have ended up in the House of Lords now, um, and. 
Uh, and the reaction from the press, be, even before I got on screen, there was the headline, East Benders. Mm -hmm. That was the, the, the huge banner headline front page of the I Sun. Remember it, yeah. um, and the uh, uh, And what felt kind of dirty was that the leak had come from inside uh, the BBC, inside the cast, we thought. And... Uh, and then once it went on air, it was so clever of the, uh, of the BBC and, and Julia and Tony because you got to know him before yes. you got to know that he yes. was gay. And, and that was three months later. Because I remember Tony Carpenter showing you around. Because I, I, I have a sort of a nerdy mind for, for this because the early days of EastEnders were really imprinted on me. And um, he makes some comment to his family about, oh, we're a nice family man, so we'll probably have the wife moving in soon and all that sort of <laughs> stuff. And I knew, I thought, ha, 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 this is, I know where this is going. <laughs> of course. And, and, but, and there were moments when I think Debbie in the show... Uh, he has Debbie over for dinner because and she 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 tries to 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 make a a play for him and he goes no 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 mm. um, so when he came out to Angie in the Vic by she said oh got problems darling and he went yeah men and she went yeah I know who'd have them and he says something like yeah oh no and what I mean is and she just looks at him and says it's all right darling. I know. Oh, bless. And there was a kind of whoop that went up across the nation. Um, and and there was, again, questions as to raised in Parliament as to why with AIDS and HIV mm. swirling around, in inverted commas, that they're bringing a homosexual into a family show mm. and a show before 8 o'clock at night. And that's the way we were depicted. We were depicted as a threat, that we were predatory, that we were paedophiles, that we didn't have real lives, we didn't have relationships. The fact that Colin had great relationships with Pauline Fowler mm. um, and then with Dart and then there's a wonderful scene in The Laundrette which is always worth, worth getting out on YouTube mm. when uh, Barry is doing the laundry and she says, oh Barry, let me help you dear with her sheets. <laughs> and she says, oh only one, only one set of sheets. Do you and Colin only have one sheet each? And he says, no Dot, two sheets on one bed. And she went, oh so you sleep top to toe. And he said, no, side by side. Oh, oh Barry, you don't mean... Not telling me that you and Colin. Oh no! No, it's a wonderful <laughs> scene. And what follows in in the in the subsequent episodes is Colin chasing Dot around the square, getting her, wanting to give her leaflets and information about AIDS and HIV, and um, and it was brilliant because they got the audience to laugh and they got the audience to empathise mm. with Colin. Mm. Um, and the fact that Colin and Barry, his young lover, were going out into their homes every week. They believed they knew us, yes. and therefore they were interested in what happened. There's to a similar us. parallel to um, Armstead uh, Morpin's uh, character, um, Anna Madrigal. He wasn't allowed to reveal the fact that she had been a a man um, for a whole year, but that actually was in his favour because he he by the time we got to that big reveal, everybody loved her because yep. uh, she was a woman who you know who looked after everybody and gave you a, a cheeky smoke and all the rest of it, you know. But yeah. And of course, I have my run-in with uh, Paul, and I have our run-in with uh, Anna Madrigal's alter ego, uh, Armistead, when we stay in his apartment in um, in the nineteen eighties in the Mission District of San Francisco. Uh, but but that is absolutely right. And and again, going back to the book, that 
that you have to write in such a way that people care yeah. about mm. what they're reading. Uh, otherwise, uh, there's no use in turning the page. Uh, I, I, and and when you're doing that with a bit of controversy, it's all the more important. Again, an Aikbornism that he told me, he said, remember, only the converted sit there nodding wisely. Mm. He said, audiences are like oysters. You've got to prise them apart very, very gently. Now, look, I don't want to get into an argument with you, but promise me you'll take the day off and I'll ring you lunchtime, OK? in these standards, you got a potentially lucrative offer um, from the news of the world to give them your life story, and I completely appreciate why you turned them down. But considering how nasty the press were later on, do you look back and think you could have owned that possibly a little bit more by telling your story on in on your own terms? I know that there's no guarantee they're going to print it mm. the same way, but it might have uh, allowed you a little bit more control. Um, with hindsight... Um, I should have taken that opportunity and said, okay, this is me. I'm living with Paul. Um, I think, if I'm honest, um, I didn't have the courage to do that then. Okay. Mm. And, and I was also worried that they, they wanted to, they would have an agenda to build me up or build the character up in order to pull it down. Um, and so I thought the best way was just do the job stupidly uh, and get on uh, without comment. And I only changed that when the government brought in the anti-gay law, Section yeah. 28, and uh, then they, they couldn't shut me up. No. But, uh, mm. but with hindsight, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, it represented an opportunity. So you had uh, a couple of times bricks run your window because they printed your address. They they, they were clever. They, they they didn't print the door number. Oh, it was um, our street and where we were, mm. and um, and all you had to do was come down our street and Work from the out. description of the house, it was it was clear. Mm. Um, and a brick came through the window the Sunday afternoon. The newspaper had been published. And then it, and then another brick came through the window uh, a few weeks later. But it was the times in which we lived. People, people were fed terrible stories about gay men in particular through their newspapers. Um, I remember reading some of those things because I was living with a landlady in Kings Lynn around the time you were uh, in EastEnders, and she used to get the news world and all the rest of it. And they, I remember people like plain-speaking John Smith yes. who would talk about this and that. And it was the most brutal language yeah. he used. And, and it was in the national domain. Yes. Uh, and, and so if when you write things as a journalist or as a politician when you say things or a pastor or a priest, whatever... We have to remember that our words can become ammunition. Mm. Um, it's the thug who puts the brick through the window. I'm interested in what gets that person to pick, a, pick up that brick 
what makes them believe that they need to destroy something because it's different. Um, and and so I go back to question it when I was in the show um, uh, um, and there was uh, and I was libeled and I had a brilliant lawyer and, and uh, he said to me and Paul sue and we sued and back came a message through legal channels that the journalist wanted us to know that he didn't believe what he was writing and I said at the time and I say this in the book that for me made it worse mm. because it's a bit like saying I was only taking orders yeah, yeah. Um, if your principles allow you to do that then they are your principles. But if they don't, stand by your principles. During the 18 months that I'd been on EastEnders, UK party politics had become harsher and nastier, stirred up by the tabloids in particular. Anyone in public life supporting the Labour Party was labelled part of the loony left. I became involved in the 1987 general election campaign alongside other well-known actors, including Ben Elton, Sue Johnston, Jill Gascoigne and Miriam Carlin. A large group gathered at the Free Trade Hall in Islington to support Neil and Glenis Kinnock, with a very young Lenny Henry among us and members of the cast from EastEnders. During the campaign, I had a request from the Labour press office to go on LBC Radio and defend the party's election manifesto. I reread the manifesto the night before and turned up the next day at LBC to see the legendary comedy actor Kenneth Williams sitting in reception. That was when I learned Kenneth was appearing for the Conservative Party. The STP were being defended by Robert Powell, of Jesus of Nazareth fame. We sat waiting for Robert, who was late, while Kenneth agitated, wailed incessantly. No, oh, punctuality is the politeness of kings. Where is he? It was tiresome, but I too disliked unpunctuality. Eventually, Robert arrived, and the three of us sat around a microphone the poor interviewer trying to get a word in, as we spoke about and defended our parties. It was virtually impossible to debate with Kenneth. He made his point, then proceeded to talk across you with camp comic brilliance, or undermine you with a series of imitations of a castrated cat. At one point, he went into a narration about empowering the individual, arguing that Mrs Thatcher was lifting people up, giving them their power. Pleased with himself and our gobsmacked faces, he then paused and smiled. I leant into the microphone and quietly reminded him that there were over one million people unemployed who had no economic power. These people had not been lifted up. They'd been dispossessed. Pardon? He stuttered in total disbelief. So I had the brilliant opportunity to repeat it. Suddenly, it sounded like a fire alarm was going off as a wail started in his throat, rose through his mouth and was emitted from the flaring nostrils with the words Lies! Lies! Wicked Labour lies! He replied the same thereafter at every point I made. At the end of the interview, he told me he was having terrible trouble with his bowels. Oh, it's like electricity! Zing! He added. Like a thousand volts shooting through him. Can you imagine? I couldn't. He then swiftly disappeared into his waiting car, casting something behind him about how Mr Powell might be punctual in future. Not all such debates would be as amusing. So, leading from EastEnders, your political career and uh, the creation of Stonewall by yourself, Ian McKellen and others. Let's just talk a little bit about mm. the origins of that. Well, so, when I was in EastEnders, the, uh, the government introduced this the first anti-lesbian and gay law in 100 years. And I knew I had to be on the march in the campaign against it. Um, you bunked off, didn't you? I bunked off. June Brown got <laughs> me, um, you know, the, the way it happened, you'll have to read in the book, but June <laughs> Brown got me the time off 
and I bunked off and went on this march. And it was the start of the campaign against this uh, Section 28, as it was called, Clause 28. Um, marches all over the country, wonderful marches. Uh, and we made all the right arguments, but we lost the battle and it went through. And I remember going to see Ian and saying, we've got, there's momentum now, we've got to set up an organisation so that another law like this doesn't happen. I went over how the campaign had been so successful, so well organised and media savvy. I tried to push more buttons, reminding them that I had good contacts in the Labour leadership and that the Tories were still keen to seduce him, including the local government minister, Michael Howard. We knew all the right people and the timing felt good. He listened politely, but no conclusions were formed and we left it there. I went home to one of Paul's afternoon dinners. The following Sunday, it was Ian's turn to ring me. So I drove to see Douglas Slater, our mole in the government whip's office at the House of Lords. I sat and listened as Douglas outlined an idea similar to one I'd put to Ian the week before. And that was the day we sat down and formed the idea for Stonewall, which would campaign for legal equality and social justice, mm. uh, then for lesbians, gay men and bisexuals, and it's widened it so that it's, that includes uh, transsexuals and intersex, uh, and I'm proud that we do include transsexuals and intersex. Um, and we began campaigning, winning the arguments, political arguments, but at the same time also taking cases through the courts and then to the European Court of mm. Human Rights where we won uh, the judgment on an equal age of consent mm. and equally on ending the ban on people serving in the military. Yes, of course. Uh, 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 and, and others, we lost a couple of cases, but, mm. but it, was a, it, it was a very good time uh, to set up a, a, a privately funded organisation that had a single remit, which was to achieve equality. And, um, and we're nearly there. I, I love the fact that you and Ian McKellen were known as Shakespeare and Soap. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> it's beautiful. Um, and, and, but in a way, we kind of... Um, we, we represented a broad front. And, and coming from... Uh, the, the, the acting world, you you use what ability you have to communicate ideas, to communicate stories. Um, and, and Ian was seen very much as, you know, he had a CBE from the Queen, very much an establishment figure, which was why mm. he was the first gay activist to meet a serving prime minister and it was captured mm. uh, on television yeah. only because the prime minister of France, Edith yes. Cresson, was due there that day. <laughs> and they saw Ian McKellen coming out, this actor who was also a gay activist and, uh, and Cresson had said how she thought 25% of all British men uh, were gay. Mm. So they were really interested. They, <laughs> they, they amalgamated uh, and found a connection. Um, and and I, I was able to work the Labour Party and, uh, and and parts of the media. So between us uh, mm. and with the, the amazing uh, others that we had and people like Lisa Power, uh, Jenny Wilson, uh, it, was a, it was a really good opportunity to get out there in the media and win the arguments and to be listened to. And also what came from that was your production of uh, Bent with, yes. uh, with Ian McKenna, which I saw and I thought it was fantastic. Well, you, you were... And it was perfect casting because you were both so associated with the, the movement. Yes, well. and, and that was the night that we, um, we raised enough money so that we could employ an executive director for Stonewall. It was on at the Adelphi Theatre in the Strand. Mm. Um, 
a stunning cast, uh, Alex Jennings, Ian Charlson, uh, amongst a, a, a vast array. But, uh, but I described the night in the book, an and incredible night, incredible night. And, and to raise all that money and then for Cameron McIntosh um, to, uh, to step in and help us out again. We, uh, that night we got drunk because we knew we were on our way. And you got um, some wonderful donations from like Elton John and I mean lots of money, lots of money. Again, there's a nice story that I won't give away, but um, where I had trouble getting hold of John Reed, who was known as the royalty of pop because he represented everyone. Elton as well. Uh, at one point, he represented Queen um, and uh, Billy Connolly, and and I met Billy, and I said to Billy, it was an airport, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. Um, and I said, Billy, John Reed never returns my calls. He went, it's nothing personal. He doesn't return my calls either. Um, <laughs> and, and, and so I managed to make contact with John and, uh, and John arranged a little dinner party and the surprise guest walked in and it was Elton. Da, da, da. And the rest will follow. Paul had played a pivotal role in my election. Downing Street had rung him to sound him out about my running for the NEC and he advised me to do it. The same year, we both decided that I should have another go at becoming one of Labour's candidates for the European Parliament. I wasn't sure whether I should do it again. I had tried in 1993 and had come a strong second for the internal party nomination as the candidate. It had been a bruising battle and I was attacked from both sides. I was dismissed by the right for being part of the Liberal elite and cast aside by the left for being a successful actor. Worst of all, despite my roots, I was told I was not working class. At that point, I didn't need much dissuasion. I believed that other people went into politics, not me. I hadn't completed my education. I hadn't gone to university. I'd grown up in a council flat. I didn't fit. Equally, back then, I wasn't sure that the voice I had found could sustain and develop itself. In a nutshell, I didn't have the confidence. Paul decided it needed to be different this time, and he had a word with the General Secretary of the Labour Party, Margaret McDonough, who took me to one side and told me to do it. I was still tentative. She just said, you're mad, you'll be brilliant. Paul shared the sentiment, adding that whatever I decided, I would have his backing. Well, that was it. I took the plunge. When was the turning point, you know, when you had to choose between the life of an actor to that of a politician? It was, a, it was while I was in the early years of Stonewall. So it was about the, the mid nineteen nineties. Having chaired Stonewall for about four years, I realised, and Paul realised to his anger, that all of my energy was going into campaigning, uh, into equality, and that I was acting less and less, turning work down. And. So uh, the uh, the London Regional Director, Margaret McDonough, who became the first woman General Secretary of the Labour Party, rang me and she said, Michael, I think you should stand for the European Parliament. I said, Margaret, I can't. I'm, I'm sanding the floor at the moment. I was. I was sanding our basement floor. Um, <laughs> Paul came in and I talked to him and he said, why not? You could do it. Of course you could do it. Um, and I phoned her back and um, and I ran for the nomination and I came second to the sitting MEP. Uh, 
And then I'd found my taste for party politics. I'd been a member of the Labour Party for years, but I always believed other people went into politics. Mm. I didn't have an education. I hadn't been to university. Mm. Um, I just knew what I felt. Um, and, and through Stonewall, I think I'd found my voice about the kind of world I wanted to live in. I found it during the Thatcher years, which I thought were awful years for what I believed in. And, and so it all came together. And so the next time, four years later in 98, Paul said, right, run for it. Come on, you can do it. Uh, and I got it and I became the first uh, openly gay uh, member of the European Parliament for the United Kingdom and it was a very proud moment because Paul and I did it together and there was, there was a couple of moments in that campaign where I nearly didn't get to the finishing line mm. a couple of really tricky moments where my enemies within the party mm. were intent to do me uh, critical damage mm. um, and then getting into the Parliament and having to learn uh, representing an area that uh, I had to convince them that I, uh, I was right for them, the West Midlands, the wonderful West Midlands, um, and being able to pursue so many things, working with people across the party political spectrum, mm -hmm. with people from other countries, the accession process when countries wanted to join the EU, yes, of course, and then yeah. saying to them, if you want to join the EU, you've got to embrace equally those laws on non-discrimination. Thank you, President. I speak as a friend of Turkey, and friends must speak honestly. I was in Turkey myself when the protests began, and what an energy, what an inspiration I witnessed in cities and towns across Turkey, not only in Istanbul. Turks unifying I focus on human rights abuses in Russia. The discrimination, violence, and human rights attack by Putin are entirely unacceptable. Attacks on lesbian, gay, bisexual and trans people equally from point of orders and to the issue of discrimination. There is currently a bill before the Ugandan parliament and some argue what is it to do with us. Breaches of international obligations, the Cotonou Agreement and breaches of human rights as we have always shown has everything to do with us. Women, disability, religion, belief, age, disability, gender, sexual orientation. And it's got to be said, you really held your ground sometimes. It's almost like playing a game of poker with some of these countries. Well, you, you, it was simple because I used to say, look, if you want to blame anyone, blame the process, blame us, blame Europe. Everybody else does. But in the end, you have to do it. Um, because Europe, the European Union, isn't an a la carte menu. You sign up because you agree between you as countries that you can achieve more together by acting together than you can achieve by acting alone. It's a simple tenet of the Labour Party, actually. It's yeah. a simple tenet of joining a trade union. Yeah. Um, and, and so for, if they wanted the, the benefits that came, they had to deal with the difficult bits uh, around the environment, around equality issues, gender issues at the heart of equality. Um, children in institutions. All of that matters because in the end, uh, the European Union is a union of values. It started as a market with values at its root and its core, values that protect you know, the consumer, protect people from being abused, protect from cartels, um, but fundamentally protect the concept that we will never look away again, that what happened during that Second World War must never be allowed to happen again. Coming from that, how are you feeling about Brexit now? 
I, I feel deeply sad mm. um, because it looks like we don't understand the concept of solidarity. We did in 1939. We recognised that what happened to others could so easily happen to us. Um, and being an offshore sweatshop of Europe, you don't become stronger. You, you, uh, you become more vulnerable to the likes of the trade agreements that you get with uh, Donald Trump uh, or perhaps China. Where do we stand on fundamental human rights if we end up doing uh, trade deals where we water down our commitment? Mm. Um, but as the anti-EUers didn't give up after the 1975 uh, referendum, which is which was their democratic right, so I will exercise my democratic right not to give up, to continue um, to put the case for being in Europe. And, um, and I'm ever the optimist. Mm. I... I um, I live in the hope, actually, Nick, that uh, uh, that life outside of this planet is confirmed and so mm. that, that, that we as a planet become smaller, that we become a country within, within, the, within the, the, the universe uh, and that we remove the borders and the boundaries uh, that stop people uh, coming together and um, living decent lives. Mm. Uh, I hope that will happen in my lifetime, but if not, it will happen. The sky is to us what the sea was to the Middle Ages. Of that I'm certain, and I'm not religious. Ed wants me to go into the Lords. Labour have given three places to put people in the House of Lords, and he wants me to be one of them. He hugged me and kissed me, and we jumped around. I'm proud of you, Babs. You deserve it. I was staggered. I sat for ages, just smiling and shaking my head. Although I dreamed of becoming a member of the House of Lords, and the incredible honour that came with it... I never believed it could happen to me, especially as so few places in the Lords came up for Labour now that we were in opposition. Tim had been clear that Ed supported me wholeheartedly and stressed that it was in recognition of the changes that I had worked for on equality issues and much more. It was true Ed and I had a good relationship and I had served him well in difficult times when I was chair of the NEC. I was on cloud nine and I felt deeply humbled, but it was also sad that my mum and dad were not around to see it. So, of course, fantastic news about the Lords, uh, following on from your CBE that you collected from the palace uh, with Paul. Um, but it wasn't just your mum and dad who didn't get to see you in the House of Lords, but also Paul, who died after a long battle with cancer. Five years on, how are you doing now, if I'm allowed to ask? Have you managed to sort of be able to bask in happy memories, but still focus on your own present and future well it's the it's the happy memories uh that keep me going sadly it's all the wonderful things happening to me now that that reinforce his absence because yeah. he was a man who knew how to celebrate mm. um going into the lords i know the names of most of the people that i work with um he would know them they would know him he was open. He was gregarious. A stranger to him was a potential friend. Mm -hmm. uh, and celebrating my book and um, uh, and all of the wonderful things that happened to me, in a way, reinforced his absence. I miss him every day. Mm. Um, I asked Sheila Hancock. I said, Sheila, how long has it been since you and John, since John died? And she said, seventeen years. And I said, Does it get any better? And she said, It does. 
She said, I remind myself of the things I do now that I couldn't do if John was alive. And she said, and I remind myself of the things I do that if John was alive, it would drive him mad. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, it's funny you said that because the other night I was reading this brilliant book, uh, Swimming in the Dark, and I wanted to finish it. And I just thought, I'll, I'll stay up. And I turned the, the reading light on beside the bed. And as I did, I could hear Paul's voice in my head saying, and you can turn that off for a start. <laughs> um, but I miss his his joy of life. I said to someone, I put it like this. He was my breath of life. And I'm holding my breath. Um, mm. I do. I miss him every day. But when he died, he died at the age of uh, 50. And, um, and, and I was staying with him in the hospital. Mm. And wonderful, wonderful people treating him. And when he knew, I won't reveal exactly how he told me, but... When we knew, he gave me the most amazing gift uh, in what he said during those last hours that we were together. And I was there for his last breath. And I saw actually what a last breath is. It's a sigh of relief when somebody breathes out and they think, oh, I don't have to breathe in again. Mm. And that's when I knew that death makes absolute sense to the dying. It's those of us who are left behind who try and make some sense of uh, uh, of the nonsense of life. But once you've been loved, it remains with you forever and you are forever changed. So I'm lucky. I must make my maiden speech, my formal contribution in the House of Lords. Until I do so, I cannot take part in debates or questions, and I cannot carry out my job as Labour's global LGBT plus envoy. I choose the modern slavery bill on which to make the speech, a deep reminder of the endless fights we must always undertake. In it, I speak of my experiences before entering the House, of Paul's death just four days prior to my introduction, and of the extraordinary kindness I've been shown. I speak of my hopes for the future, and I speak of the privilege I have been given. Finally, I print the speech, tuck it into my suit pocket, and get ready to leave home. Looking Looking out out across London London from from our flat, flat, I I watch the dark, sluggish sluggish Thames slowly winding its way upstream and decide to take the boat to work. The pavement is wet, and I remember to button up my coat. My mind is racing ahead to standing up in the chamber, but I remind myself to be present. I look across to the park and the Japanese maples clinging to leaves of embarrassed red, to a street where I ran and played as a kid and where my mum trudged daily in snow or hail in the hours before dawn to go to work where my dad searched for jobs as a young docker and often staggered home on borrowed beer. I think of our lives lived out along this street, no more than 500 yards away from where I was born and where we grew up. And I recognise that it was Paul who brought me home to the East End, brought us home.
listening to SNS Online with today's special guest, Lord Michael Cashman, CPE. So, of course, you came back to um, EastEnders mm-hmm. in 2016, uh, which I, I was so excited that uh, Colin Russell was coming back. Um, what was it like after all those years? It was incredibly um, moving. Uh, they talked to me before and I said, no, I'm not sure. And then they came up with this lovely story that Colin was coming back because he was getting married and June uh, Dot, uh, he knew, wasn't going to turn up. So he turns up to get her. Um it was incredibly moving because there was one scene where I yeah. walk into the Vic where he witnesses that there's a wake of a young boy who was murdered because he was holding his partner's hand. And in 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 a minute, one minute, the dialogue spins the whole thing back 30 years to how he remembered it and how difficult it was and about Barry and about how there are always people who want to stop the world moving forward. Um and can I just say it was a wonderful performance out there. Oh, yeah, well, thank you. I lived here years ago. It was a different world. But I was lucky. I had someone younger than me, mad as a bat. But we had one another. And we lived through the AIDS crisis and the hatred and everything else. Of course, the world is changing. Changing still. But there are some people who want to hold it back. People who want to hate you because they think you're different. And the, the amazing thing was, I wasn't nervous. It was like going home. And it was wonderful. And working with lovely Ted in that scene. And June, who I think should be made a dame of the world, let alone of the British Empire. Absolutely. Um, and June said, oh, Mike, dear, why don't you come round? We need to do a bit of rewriting. Oh, my gosh, you just walked in then. <laughs> She's the only one who's ever allowed to rewrite scenes. And that's why it was special to go back for. I'm not asking you to agree to my marriage. It would really mean a lot to me if you were there. Why? Why is it so important Because you? you were the first person who really accepted me. All of my mates were gay. You got to know me, and you saw beyond the gay stuff. We lived through it, Dot. Don't you remember? When you went do lally because you found out me and Barry were sharing a bed. <laughs> and I'll come over to your flat and I'd hank you over your nose in case I caught anything. <laughs> and I had to chase you around the square trying to give you an AIDS leaflet. I went into the cafe after that and I told them, you can't catch AIDS off a cup. <laughs> and after all that, Dot, Despite wrestling with your religion, you became my friend. And then afterwards we talked about possibly Colin going back on a more permanent basis and, uh, uh, and, and we collectively decided otherwise. And it was right because I'm in the House of Lords. I've got, I've got a job of work to do on equality. I've got to extend it in this country. Uh, we've got to right the wrongs of the past. We've got to extend it so that when we travel our rights travel with us and in other countries people have the same rights and in a way if you become too associated with one show your opposition can rightly say one day he's giving us lectures about human rights and the next day he's trying to buy a packet of fags for dot Mm. who are we dealing with (laughs) the issues are far too important but it uh, it was lovely to go back 
Do you feel you've put acting to bed now? Uh, I think so. But then if you'd asked me um, six years ago, would I have written my memoir? I would have said no. Um, leave yourself open to possibilities and then you can wake up every day optimistic, wrestling with the fact that Paul's not with me, but optimistic that actually, you you know what, Um, I'm healthy, I have a life, and I have the most amazing families, Paul's family and the Cashman family, and I have my friends. So you're possibly not doing a Glenda then? (laughs) Uh, First of all, um, Glenda's much more talented than me. Um, and um, But I, I don't know. Never sh- As a creative person, you can't shut off uh, avenues. My mum used to say, um, something will turn up, son, if only the toes of your shoes. And it's a lovely image. This man stood there doing nothing, waiting, waiting, and the toes of his shoes start to curl up. Um, who knows? That's lovely. Michael Cashman, Lord Michael Cashman, CBE, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you. It only remains for me to give you, as we give with all our guests, your celebrity goodie bag. In oh, fact, my you, goodness. You've got two. <laughs> oh, my God, it is a bag, indeed. <laughs> there we go. Wow. I think I've merged into one. My goodness. <laughs> lots of goodies there. That so. is incredible. Thank, thank you, you so much, much Nick. Thank really. you. Appreciate it. And our thanks again go to Lord Michael Cashman, CBE, for being so generous with his time today. Abridged narrated passages from one of them, from Albert Square to Parliament Square, were read by Anthony Townsend and Michael Cashman. Join us again for more SNS Online Series 7 very soon. But until then, from me, Nick Randall, goodbye. SNSonlineshow.com, your brand new one-stop shop for all things SNS. Take a tour through our wide and diverse collection of shows and listen in to our exclusive range of in-depth interviews spanning the popular arts, featuring actors, writers, journalists, stand-up comedians, musicians and more. You can also enjoy our shorter bite-sized series covering vibrant new theatre, television and book releases – 
And with our Arts Lifestyle Remit, you get to explore issue-based topics, including health, mental health, women's rights around the world and LGBTQ. Contact us with both your comments and suggestions for future guests. And don't forget to read up on our blog, regularly updated with articles and photographs, a forum where everyone is welcome to contribute. SNSonlineshow.com, your one-stop shop for all things SNS. SNS.